Hello and welcome to episode 61 of Just Keep Writing. A podcast for writers. Bye, writers. To keep you writing. I'm Marshall. I'm Nick. I'm Brent. Oh, and I'm Will. <laughs> and Will's here. Good, 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 good. All right, swear guys, you did that on purpose, Will. <laughs> <laughs> All right, we're back. We're, we're, we're at the helm. We're into the 60s now. 61. This is pretty exciting. Uh, episode 60 was our second episode of Just Keep Writing While Black. Um, so I figured we'd start there and then we'll get into some other stuff. What do you guys think? How do you guys feel about the last episode? Are we stoked about it? Are we enjoying it? I'm just saying things I'm probably going to cut out. Go ahead. Look, this is what I want to know. When are we going to turn these interviews with these authors into live panels somewhere? <laughs> because I want to sit in on some of this stuff and like get live reactions and like see the video feed. Like I just love one. I love what we're doing with just keep writing with black Marshall and Brent. You guys are doing awesome with it. I love it. Love the guests you guys are bringing on and I hope it continues, but yeah, I'm ready to do something in person. Well, as we discussed it in our meeting that the audience is not privy to, um, we have goals. Okay. We need to meet certain goals and then we will. Um, but how Brent and Marshall, how do you feel about it? I'll go last. Brent, you go next. Okay. Um, I really like Shingai. She's like, I mean, I, I, I tell, I told her this outside of the podcast previously, but I just feel like she's like one of those rising stars. Like she's one of those young writers that's really going to, um, I feel like give her five years. She's, she's going to be out here just like changing the scene. She's, um, yeah, she's just phenomenal. She's such a talent. So I was really happy to get to talk with her. And I like the fact that we also, for the second time in a row, we had a black author do their very first podcast interview with us. So I thought that was yeah. cool. That is amazing. That's yeah, so I'm, I'm so glad you said that. Cause I was exactly, I was just thinking that I was like, that's twice. And how cool is that to be able to be uh, the first podcast for somebody like, and, and it goes the other way too, with every episode is someone's first episode, you know, listening to a podcast this is something I teach this is something that is important when you're podcasting to understand, but also like it, it's, it, there's some, there's a hurdle to jump over if you've never done it before and being interviewed and being on the spot um, and not being familiar with the medium or being on it. It's, it's crazy, but it, it was it was a ton of fun. And I, Shingai is amazing. I cannot wait for that novella, by the way. That's going to be insanity. <laughs> Which reminds me is that they're actually doing the Kickstarter uh, currently for the novellas. Um, so if we can also put that in our show notes so everyone can support it. I already have. I'm super excited about it. Um, and that way we can help them make some money and get their goal. Yeah, it will absolutely be in the show notes for sure. So we should talk about social media and stuff before we get into the episode. What do you think? We had any updates? I would say for updates, we've been not on Instagram since February, but that will be changing in another couple of weeks. Um, personally, I've been handling it and I needed a little bit of a break because for work purposes, social media has been a little intense for me. Um, but for Twitter, we're still on Twitter announcing the shows. Um, I would actually love to do more on Twitter to really just build up a positive community and also social media is really about our discord um, because discord is a great way that you can join and be a part of a community. And it's something that we're really going to spearhead in the next uh, for the remaining of 2021. So if you haven't joined our discord, you should. And the link is in the show notes for discord. And um, some of us 
aren't as active as we should be. And we're going to try to change that for sure. But we really appreciate everybody who's been in the discord, having these conversations, supporting each other. Um, and it is a community and it's amazing. And some of it has leaked over from retreats and stuff that we've done. Um, but a lot, but we've had a lot of new folks join, uh, that have found the podcast and, and it's amazing. And, and we have a ton of different channels. If you're looking for help, if you're looking for feedback, if you just want to chat or just, you know, throw an idea out there and see what happens. That's the place to do it. So definitely do that. Um, Nick, do you want to talk about Ko-Fi? Yeah. So we actually are expanding our platforms in which we can be found on um, and other ways that you guys can support us. So instead of Patreon, we have set up a new account called Ko-Fi. And Ko-Fi is super unique because you can go in and just donate X amount of dollars and not have to worry about a monthly subscription and canceling it or anything like that. Um, so it's a great option. Just go in, give a quick donation if you guys need to, to support the show. We would greatly appreciate it. Um, but it is up um, and we'll start posting our episodes to there as well as Patreon. Um, and if you're a subscriber to Ko-Fi and you've been able to donate and stuff like that, the same perks that you would get for Patreon will still apply as well. So keep that in mind. Um, we'll have that all the posted there for you and everything like that. So, yeah, I think that's nice too. It's not a fully monthly commitment of money. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like it's, you know, you, if you have an extra 10 bucks and you want to help us out, throw it there. Um, and we'll give you access. I mean, I'll find a way to give you access to the, to the writing prompts and stuff. I mean, that's easy to do. So, um, that's a really good way of, uh, supporting the show. So we appreciate everybody who may do that. And thanks to all our patrons, of course, still, cause you're of all course. amazing. And also, um, if you can please leave a review on iTunes, it is the best way that you can get your um, algorithms up and people can actually find our show and then also be a part of the broader community. Well, not to mention, we will be using these reviews for contests, giveaways, anything that we see fit for. Shout outs of just saying, hey, thanks, thanks um, for Nick Bright, for leaving us a review. Holy crap. I'm going to say it right now. Four stars? What the heck, man? You give us a four star. Is it four or five star? Well, four stars? Five. 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 Damn it, Nick. Five. I'll tell you what. You <laughs> give us a four star. If I, fuck, I said it too. You give us a five star review, I guarantee we'll read it on the show. Yeah, 100%. As long as you don't give us a five star and then be shitty or something. But anyway. Yeah. Hey. Or, <laughs> or personally give one of us death threats. Not saying that it happened. Yeah, yeah. We're not being anything um, inappropriate or insane, but no. you know. If death threats are going around, please direct it towards me. Well, next time <laughs> and then I do get not one, block I, me. Next, and then do not hide yourself from me after the fact. Let's have a conversation. Oh, here we yeah. go. <laughs> well, I'll that make sure fun. I forge mine. <laughs> make sure I forge mine. Well, I feel like you know we had a long and and this is behind the paywall, obviously, but we we've had a little conversation before this about things we want to do, and and uh, and this has been. It's been good. So I think we're going to really blaze forward and I don't know the best way to say it. I don't know. Be better. That's why I always tell my students, be better. We're going to be better. <laughs> well, we want to be able to excel at what we do. We yeah. want to be able to build that community even further than what we have before. I don't know. We're doing great things, uh, but you know, there's always more that could be done. Like, like you said, Marshall, be better. Be better. Might be the name of this episode. If it wasn't, Instead, end with a wallop, which we're going to get into because I'm spearheading this bad boy this week. You guys ready to talk about endings? Uh, yes. <laughs> and, and oh my gosh, is this also the last chapter? Yes, sir. This In is the last chapter. Twist? Last chapter of Mastering Plot Twist. 
Jane Cleland. We've been talking about this for weeks. Um, and we're going to talk about endings. And this chapter, I don't know. I'll, I'll ask you guys. I have this all set up uh, the way I want to do this. But uh, so the chapter is called In With a Wallop. If you don't have it, Mastering Pot Twist, that's the book we're talking about. Um, and so I'm going to read the intro paragraph to this section because, um, and then I'm going to get into what I'm going to ask the boys. So here we go. Reaching a fitting conclusion. By the end of the story, all primary and secondary plot lines have to come together to form one satisfying conclusion. All character questions have, have been answered. All conflicts have been resolved and any ethical dilemmas you've raised have been settled. Sometimes you went in with a quiet resolution. Other times you want to stun and surprise your readers with an unexpected final twist. This chapter shows how you decide what's best and how to accomplish this complex and multi-layered task. And I'm going to, I'm going to throw something out before I get into kind of the nuances of how to end your book. Um, One of the pieces of feedback that I've gotten, and you guys go ahead and tell me, this is something that's not my notes. If you're looking, Um, if you've gotten this feedback before, like, I've been submitting short stories a lot in the last couple of years. And the main feedback I've gotten is that my endings aren't landing. And that's a huge, huge thing. I mean, you, if you're reading a novel and someone gets to the end of your book and they're left asking questions or there's lacking there, that's, that's a, that's a big deal. That's a big miss, right? Um, Obviously if it's a book is published, that's probably not, a huge issue, but I'm sure there are some that we can talk about that um, as well. So has anybody else had issues with endings or anything before we get into this? Um, I, I'll say this. I think there's an appropriate amount or certain questions. Some short stories leave you asking intentionally. Yeah. It's, the, it's the questions that you ask that are unintentional by the, by the writer. Um, obviously you know plot holes and things like that uh and that, that's kind of my my only caveat because i know i've struggled with the same thing as well marshall and it, it, i'm kind of trying to narrow that down myself and we've been talking about short fiction obviously this book deals with novels finishing a novel right but with short fiction you're right if they're if you're left asking a question or there's something lacking or something wasn't answered that can be frustrating for sure um will you have something to say as usual. Um, sure. Brent gave me um, a review of the story that he read and my ending was not landing. And um, there were, th- there were steps that I was missing to create an even bigger impact of the ending. And as a person who wrote it three or four times, maybe before Brent got it, I have to say, each time I rewrote it, the ending was closer and closer to the truth that I wanted to tell in the story. But it was also Brent's feedback as an editor um, that really made me see like, okay, now like I really get the motivation of maybe why it wasn't, it wasn't that it was what Nick was saying about caveat. It wasn't just about having more questions because sometimes questions are good. It was that it didn't make logical sense for the characters. There needed to be a more progression to really land that ending, to give the impact that Brent knew I wanted to give. So instead of giving me his version of how it should be ended, 
he gave me ideas and questions to ask myself, which led me to a much stronger story overall, but a much more impactful ending. I think that's what a good editor should do, right? Rather than tell you how to do it. Have you thought about this, 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 and this, right? I think that's super important. Brent, you were going to say something? I'm sorry. No, no, no. I was just, I was smiling at the compliment. Oh. <laughs> let, yeah. let, let's also just throw it out there. Brent is the professional editor in the room here. <laughs> we got one. He has done it's stuff yeah. for all three of us for a minute. Um, yeah. So Brent, I'm actually curious to hear your side of this on endings and like being left with questions at the end of short fiction or novels or novelettes. Okay. So, um, with for me with endings, I guess in my own writing, I actually can't even start drafting until I know the ending. Like I have to know how the story actually ends before I can even put down the first page. So I'm a bit different, I think, than um what this chapter probably is speaking to, but I feel like with um with endings like emotionally they have to be satisfying but they also have to make sense within the world and you also have to consider um what and i think the book actually talks about this like what ending works best for your type of genre or what you're trying to do as a um writer and um, i mean well i guess maybe unfortunately or fortunately sometimes you have to take in business considerations too into how you end the story and um how, you know, for instance, like a writer just starting off trying to get an agent, you probably don't want to try to shop a story that has an open ending or doesn't really complete everything because the agent's not going to want to sell that. So, um, yeah, endings are, ending, I guess I, I guess my overall point is endings are very, like, kind of um, a complex subject because it really just depends on, like, you got to know what your goal is when you get to the end of the story, like what are you trying to, what are you trying to leave me with after I'm done with the story? Like, what do you want me to still remember by the time I'm, I'm done with your story? I think with like, for instance, with Will's story, I think Will very much wanted the reader to leave with the sense of this person's nobility and their sacrifice and, you know, what they were giving to the world. And, um, yeah, so when I was looking at the story, I was just kind of trying to um, ask some questions about like, okay, what way can you better set up this emotional impact that you want me to walk away with? Or I think in like your story, Nick, like you were, um, you were setting up this strong mystery, right? And so, and that was yeah. a backdrop of like this much bigger, this much bigger conspiracy happening. So I was kind of just trying to like have you gauged the ways and like what breadcrumbs can you leave throughout the rest of the story that will make that ending more impactful? So, yeah, I think, does that answer the question? I don't know. I feel like I was rambling. Yeah, no, no, it does. And I, I was just throwing it out there um, to you guys really just to, before we get into how to end a story is just how we kind of think about endings. I've, I, I, Brent, honestly, like, I have an idea most of the time, I want to say, of how I think a story should end. Like the story I recently submitted, I knew how I wanted that to end because I was mirroring kind of something else. But it's like, I don't 
I don't plan it out because I know it's going to change. Like, it's interesting not being able to write a story until you know the ending. Like, I've started stuff and I was like, oh, we'll see how this goes. You know what I mean? Like, it's a very different mindset, um, I think, than, than you're bringing to it. So I, I just think that's really interesting. Anybody, else, anybody have anything else to add before we get into the ways to end a story? I mean, I don't know if I... Sometimes I know what I want it to be in the ending. Like with Paradigm Shift, I knew what I wanted, but I don't think I was articulating it in the way that it needed to be impactful and the way that was um, made sense to the character. Brent really asked me important questions and gave me examples. So I think, you know, there's differences about the way you can think of endings. You know, For sure. sometimes yeah. I have to stop saying, you know, but yeah, there we go. Yeah. You know, <laughs> go fuck yourself. <laughs> I'm just going to All right. So um, let's get into this. All right. So in the book, uh, she sets up three ways to end um, in a story. Okay. Um, number one, uh, seamless integration. So I'm gonna just going to read from uh, the bottom of 207. There are three ways to finish a story. One. Let it end at a natural stopping point with all plot threads woven together into a whole cloth, which is also called seamless integration. Number two, let your unreliable narrator come out from behind the curtain. An unreliable narrator revealed is the second one, right? Or number three, provide a wider lens view of the landscape. And, you know, a wider lens is what this is called. So what I want to do is this. I'm going to, I'm going to analyze each one. Um, the second one is going to be a little bit kind of crazier. Um, I think we'll spend more time on number one, depending on how much time we spend there. Um, we might gloss over some of number two. Um, I have a quick way of going through that. And then number three, um, is also a little shorter. So here we go. Number one is seamless integration. And this is something that, um, most stories end. uh, I'm just going to read this. Most stories end when the subplots are twine, uh, subplots twine around the primary plot in what I call seamless integration. When it's done well, readers don't see it coming. They don't anticipate how smoothly the subplots align with the primary plot, so it feels like a twist, even though it isn't. Okay? This approach is most common option, and it works well most of the time. Okay? So I'm going to leave it at that. All right? Now, I want to throw out there to you guys is this. So example number one, I'm going to jump. So there's a chart on uh, in 9.2, Okay? Um, that basically gives examples of these things. Okay. Um, and what I'm going to do is I'm going to, I want to read the example that she gives and I want you guys to come up with an example. Um, and I'm not necessarily really want to limit this to books, but let's try to start there. Does that make sense? Because I think it might be a little bit easier to tackle, um, some of this stuff if we let movies and tv kind of leak in at some point is that fair yeah no, that's fair right. okay so um let's take a look seamless integration or example number one on page 213 if you got the book uh the case study number one is a political thriller by ending with the certainty that the next president of the united states will be a woman of unimpeachable integrity i support the idea that sometimes the good guys win okay now I think what's interesting about this is this, okay? Is seamless integration is what's used most often. And I'm going to kind of set my book aside right now. Um, this is when we talked about subplots last time. 
Okay. So I want you guys to think of examples that the subplots, and it could be an example from last time as well. Subplots run and you see it coming. And at the end, everything seamlessly comes together. Okay. Most common ending. Throw some examples out there. I'll start with, uh, let's start with Brent. Ooh. You're first on my list. Okay. So typically you're going to see seamless integration. I'll bring it back to business perspective in publishing. So most of the time you're going to see seamless integration in the first book of a series or a standalone book, just because that's usually the best kind of ending for those, because you may not know if you're going to get a continuation. Um, So I just finished Black Sun, actually, by Rebecca Roanhorse. I didn't just finish it, but I looked at my bookshelf inside up there and I remember it being pretty seamless. <laughs> um, so in that one, you had you had the main character who was on this quest to um, basically destroy this city that um, massacred his people. And there's a subplot in there of of the one of the other priests um, and her sh- power struggles that she's facing and basically her power struggle results in her not being there during a key event at the end and you realize this this plot her plot was integral to his plot not succeeding and it all came together in a very interesting way so that's that's a that's a really recent example of scenes integration i can think of i don't want to spoil it by getting into too many details i know that's a pretty recent <laughs> book but yeah all right, no worries. Will, you got some? Uh, yeah, sure. I think the best way that things can come into play for seamlessly going into, I will talk about Ready Player One. Huh. I think the first part of the finale that brings everything together is the point one. Uh, they're gathering the team. To kick off the secret plan, Wade emails Artemis, Ake, and Shoto, telling them exactly to refine the sinking gate and how to obtain the crystal key. The next point, too, is they're executing a plan. Although they still don't know what the plan is, we're on the edge of our seats waiting to find out. It starts when 101 comes to arrest Wade for not paying his credit card bill. Then um, we go through more action, and then we have uh, point three, which is Hightower Surprise. As soon as Wade, Artemis, and Ake steep through the gate, a huge booming sound rings out, and all three of them die. Spoilers, everyone. Point four. (laughs) Dig deep down. A proof that he's learned. um, This also ties back to the theme. So this is a seven-point... Yeah, this is like a four-point, five-point structure of how everything comes together. Point four. Dig deep down. A proof that he's learned the theme and values his real-life friends more than the prize, Wade broadcasts a public message to the entire Oasis, revealing his true identity and vowing to split the prize money among his four friends. Point five, the execution of the new plan. To pass the third gate, Wade has to play Tempest, another 80s video game. Artemis tells him about a bug in the game that gives him extra lives. Thanks to her help, he wins the games and enters stage two of the third gate, where he has to reenact one of the holiday's favorite movies, this time Monty Python and the Holy Grail. Meanwhile, the Sixers are right behind him playing the Tempest and closing in. He successfully finishes the movie test and ends up in a replica of Halliday's office. So 
I could read a little bit more, but then we go down to the final image. We're back in Og's mansion. Wade logs out of the oasis and finds and goes to find Artemis in the backyard. Outside in the real world, he finally meets her in person. She introduces herself as Samantha, and Wade declares that he's in love with her. She kisses him, and Wade admits that for the first time, he has had no desire to log back into the Oasis, not when real life is this good, which re-interconnects with the um, the beginning of the book. So there mm-hmm. we go. Point-by-point play of Ready Player One and how it all comes together. <laughs> Mike That's a good example. Drop. I love that book. <laughs> I'm not a fan, but it was a good example. I know. I was surprised you you, you brought up that example, but because I know you're not a fan of that book. But well, sometimes you just have to look at like things that were structured really well, even yeah. if it's not like one of my favorites. But um, I would say I think that was structured really well in how the execution went and brought yeah. everything together. Nick, you got one. So I'm gonna go with These Weirwood by Christian Heidecker. Oh, I love that book. I really it is. So well done. I'm excited. I haven't read the second one yet. Um, Ghost. Yeah, that, the Ghost. I'm so excited for it. Um, it, it it's so a middle good. grade, but oh, he does it really, really well to tie like like Will's example, tying things from back to the beginning and stuff like that. Um, tying, everything's nice and neat at the end where you're like, okay, cool. It could end here, but it doesn't, which I'm happy for. I think another book that I know I talk about it a lot, but um, I think Crooked Kingdom by Lee Bardugo also just comes together beautifully. But I think what's really great about that book too is because it's also a second part of a heist. It still leads you, like the characters aren't super finished with what they're doing, but it is the end of the duology. So I really love the way she ends it. Well, you kind of stole mine and that's okay because I had a backup. Um, no, and you're we'll right. Talk about because, it. No, no, but think about it. Uh, with Crooked Kingdom, you know, because it is the end of the duology, but the, the thing I like about it is it wraps up seamlessly, because like because that's the idea here, wraps up uh character arcs and subplots from the first book in the second book as well. You get more of Jasper, you get more of the Wraith, you get more, you know what I mean? And like you get these. Uh, you get a conclusion of you actually kind of get to see a bigger arc and then a, almost a closure of some of the arcs, um, which I like on, on that as well. Um, so that's a good example. But the other example I was going to bring up is literally anything. And, and because this is my backup and you can't give me shit. Well, um, the it, look, and I love these books and you're going to give me shit and you're already starting to blink green. And I think Rich. that's, <laughs> but anything that Ari Salvatore writes with the Driss stuff, and I knew you were going to laugh at this, but think about it. He sets everything up in the beginning, multiple POVs, and by the end, it doesn't matter if that is not the end of the trilogy. That those those um, questions and those and those quests and everything that's going on in that book closes off seamlessly at the end, and you're left satisfied. And I think that's the idea here, right? Is that you're left satisfied? You, I could leave the first book of one of his trilogies, many multiple trilogies. I could leave that first book and feel okay, knowing there's more, but feel good at the end of that if I never pick up the second book, right? And I think that's a, a kind of the feeling I have when you have this seamless um, integration of of an ending. 
You know, I think epic fantasy is really interesting to me because I don't, I wouldn't say that it's my favorite. I'm very particular about it. But what I have been reading uh, recently, The Unbroken, oh, yeah. which is epic fantasy, is done so well. And there's so much thought put into that whole world. I feel like it blows away older works of fantasy. I'm only about a quarter of the way through that. And based on your recommendation, I'm about a quarter of the way through that. I know my wife has started as well. I'd love to have a conversation about that when I finish it. Because I'm I'm, I'm already in and it's amazing. And I also believe that this is also what should be happening in fantasy because Bob Salvatore does executes really great plots, right? Mm -hmm. But I feel like the next generation is getting to be more nuanced and can have more things to say. And also because we are hearing it from someone who isn't part of the, the dominant paradigm of society that you can say something different. And I believe that's what good stories will do and good each generation should be leveling up and looking mm-hmm. at old works and keep going. That's why I, I know I tease you a lot about Bob, yeah, but I, I do think he is a good storyteller. Yes. My, my taste now, I think when I actually just read all three of those books um, and I loved them, but I can also see pinpoints of where I can see one, how young he was, one, he's part of a dominant culture. So his viewpoint isn't as, uh, I would say, thought-provoking as I see works now, especially coming from people who are not part of the dominant paradigm of culture, if that makes sense. It does, yeah. Nick? Yeah, um, can you name the author of these books, of the Unbroken series? Yes, I can. It's C.L. Clark for The Unbroken. I just sometimes I won't always remember it if you guys don't say the author. I don't know how you don't remember this book because I think I've talked about it 80 times. He's talked about it a lot, which is why I'm reading it, but it's Mm -hmm. fine. Um, It's okay. Okay. You don't listen to me anymore. (laughs) (laughs) Maybe if Brent talked about it, you'd listen. It's okay. I feel ignored. Well, Sheree is my friend. So, (laughs) all right, gents. Um, Let's do this uh the second part is the unreliable narrator revealed okay unfortunately i don't want to say unfortunately but it's got several kind of i don't know how do you want to say it subcategories to it um so let me just i'm going to read part of this and then i want to kind of i'm going to jump around maybe a little bit i don't think i'm going to ask for examples from each one of these but what I kind of want to give you guys the option of is if I give you examples of what she's talking about for each one, you guys feel free to jump in if something jumps to your mind or at the end, we'll just kind of grab one. Does that make sense? Cause there's, there's, there's a lot here. Bring it batch. Bring it. Yeah. All right. So here we go. Unreliable narrator allows authors great flexibility in determining how to relay information, what to withhold and when to reveal it. This device keeps readers wondering what is really going on. You need to be cautious, however. You can't have someone suddenly shout, but he's a twin, 
nor can you have your protagonist wake from a dream or a drug-induced hallucination. When done well, however, an unreliable narrator can really get people thinking. So I'm going to list off the five, uh, is there five? There's five categories of this. Four, five. So there's the innocent, the unknowing, or the misunderstood. There's the guilty. There's the emotionally taxed or mentally ill. The incapacitated or the paranormal. Okay. So those are the five kind of categories in this. All right. So I think what I might do is I'm going to start with um, the innocent, the unknowing, or the misunderstood, and I'm going to give her case example, and I'm just going to read this, and that might jog your guys' memory a little bit on, you know, if there's something, another story that pops in your mind, throw it out there, or if it's something you're trying to pull off in your work. Does that make sense? Okay. So uh, the innocent, the unknowing, or the misunderstood. So the first example in hers is Mark Haddon and the curious incident of the dog in the nighttime from 2003. Okay. It's a young adult, uh, adult and young adult mystery. So the little blurb she has here is the narrator is Christopher John Francis Boone, a 15 year old boy who describes himself as a mathematician with some behavioral difficulties. The narrator seems to be somewhere on the autism spectrum, although that is never mentioned in the book between his age and, the, and his self-acknowledged inability to understand metaphors, his observations, while often astute, are often also often wrong. While he solves one mystery, the ending implies that life is filled with mysteries and that he can handle them all. Okay? So that is the uh, first example of the unreliable narrator, the innocent, the unknowing, or the misunderstood. Does that help you guys jog any, does anything come to mind in that category? And it doesn't necessarily have to be books because I know there's some movies and stuff that really pull this off too. So feel free. If not, I can go to the second one. I, I think I have one. Um, go. So this is, this is a super throwback, but um, the character of Axe from the Animorph series, whenever he would get his own POV books, um, Axe was an Andalite. So he was an alien and he would make these interesting commentaries on um, human culture that on the surface is like, yeah, this makes sense. But uh, you really dig into it, it's like, no, this doesn't make any sense at all. Like he had this um, fascination with books and his thing about books was like, well, why do you even bother with computers? Like books have all the data downloaded right here. You can just open it up and there's no <laughs> there's no download time. It's right here. And I always find that interesting. And it was a great way to show, like, I guess, like how humans are, how the things we take as commonplace, we we don't, um, other aliens wouldn't think it's actually really sophisticated. Or how um, he would comment often on how, how the hell did humans become the dominant species on this planet when you have things like tigers and lions and, and other things <laughs> running around? So, um yeah, I always liked his narration because he always brought um, an interesting aspect to the whole struggle that those characters are going through throughout that book series. So I always like looked forward to his um, his books because he would have these interesting commentaries on uh, on human interaction, and oftentimes he would get himself and he would get himself into weird scenarios because. He didn't quite understand norms. So there was one time he shapeshifted into a human and he's digging through the trash can and he's eating old cigarettes. And he was like, 
oh, uh-huh. I like these. These give me a buzz. Like, you know, he's liking the nicotine. And the other other animals like, no, you can't do that. Like, you can't dig in trash, then eat cigarette butts. And he's like, why not? They're, they're, they're perfectly good. And so, you know, it's just um, little things like that. Like, I, that's, that's, that's one unreliable narrator I always found interesting. Um, I think of a book that was written a long time ago. Um, it's called Sati by Christopher Pike. It's an old 90s book about a girl who says that she's God. And the reason that I chose that is because you, was she God? Is she God? Her perspective can come across naive, but at the same time, there were these really fascinating questions that were coming out of that from her naivety. One of the examples is one of the characters And I want to say this, if anyone's ever read it or wants to read it, there are some things that are problematic in the book, I would say, Uh, but it's still a really beautiful parable. One of the ones is one of the characters we find out is dying of AIDS. And she asks him, the other characters want Satie to cure him. And make sure he doesn't die. And Satie's Satie then asks him, I believe his name was David. I might be wrong though. So let's just pretend it was David. David, do you do you want me to cure you? And now this whole time everyone's questioning, is she really who she says she is? Is she God? And he says, No. I don't want to be cured. I'm okay if I pass away. And Satie asks everyone else, you all want me to cure him, even though when he goes, he's closer to the light. So you want, do you want to deny him his chance to be with the light right now? So you keep him around. And the question comes across naive, because in her opinion, she's like, well, all of us are going to go home to the light. She never really uses the word heaven. She always talks about the light and the source and the source is her God. So her character does come across naive. Her character also comes across arrogant because she pulls out flyers and says that she's God. And it is really a meditation of life. I've read this book 45 times. And I think if you are going through a difficult period, it is a really great, easy read to think about it because she is an unreliable narrator. Well, uh, amazing examples, gentlemen. Um, Should I move on to the guilty or does anybody have anything else? Like I said, we don't all have to respond to each one of these. Um, The way I want to do it is if something pops out to you, cool. If not, we'll move on. But um, let's go. Let's move on to the guilty. Okay. Um, so it's very short. In this category, we have people who feel guilty and people who are guilty. The narrator may be lying to save face, his marriage, or his job, or otherwise protect and preserve whatever he thinks, sorry, whatever he has or thinks he has. Or the narrator may be an actual criminal who doesn't want to admit his past sins or is trying to hide current ones. Okay. Okay, so, I got one. 
Uh, good. Uh, I'm going to read her example, like I've been doing, just to keep consistent, um, because I think uh, it's a good, you know, and then, you know, maybe it might jog someone else's memory, okay? So the example she gives, the first, she gives two in each one of these, but I'm just going to read one. Ford Maddox, Ford, uh, sorry, Ford Maddox Ford, The Good Soldier, 1915. It's literary fiction. Told through a series of non-chronological flashbacks, the unreliable narrator progressively reveals a version of events that differs from what readers were led to believe in the introduction. At the end, we're left wondering whom to trust and how to gauge reality. Okay, so that's her example. Brent, you got one? So I have one that isn't a book, so I'm not 100% sure it fits, but I'm going I'm going to mention it cuz I actually thought about it when I was reading this chapter earlier. Um I think of Saw 2, specifically Saw 2, um the movie because <laughs> I feel like that cop's lies and his inability to admit that he put these people in jail on falsified reasons is what ended up getting him Ended up ended up with him being at the end of that movie trapped in that room basically because um yeah and like I said I don't know if this one is specifically one hundred percent fits but I just remember the twist at the end of that movie and going holy shit like he he's he did this to himself like and his um yep. is all of his his all of his sins and his um lies caught up to him and he this whole time like the movie was trying to really trying hard to present him as the as this um angry hero but at the end of the day it was like no you actually the villain like you you kind of deserved what happened to you so i don't know that did, I, did, I, did I miss the name of that movie saw he said oh, saw, saw two. two saw two specifically. Saw, saw two yeah saw two specifically yeah and i always think of like when i think of like unreliable like narrator that like kind of like results in the twist and I guess it's probably more of an unreliable protagonist, but I think it still sort of fits here. I always think of that movie in particular because it's just like the whole time it seemed like it was trying to present this idea of like, you know, you see it in TV all the time, the angry cop who crosses the line, but he does it for the right reasons type bullshit. So this movie actually like, I feel like did a really interesting job of deconstructing that. And though it's like this guy was lying and he put these people, he's ruined, he ruined people's lives for basically no reason. And it all caught up to him at the end. So I always think of that movie when thinking about this. Okay. Cool. I like it. Nick, do you have something for someone who's guilty? I do. I have two of them actually. So I'm going to go book and then I'm going to go show. And uh, so the book, this really just reminds me of the stormlight archive. And Dalinar Colin in the in the first two books, um, because there is a secret he's hiding and trying to stay away from, and to absolve himself of the same secret, he did something even worse, per se. Um, and I don't want to give any spoilers on that one at all. Um, so, but that's a one that comes to mind. But another one too. Brent, you got me hooked on that show, um, How to Get Away with Murder, <laughs> right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Oh, that show is right? amazing. <laughs> so many, so many guilty people in that show. And I think at points, Viola Davis's character is that guilty narrator um, through multiple, 
multiple parts. Uh, you guys got to watch that show. It's so good. Yeah. The season two finale, I think, is a, is an amazing example of like guilty oh. people's stuff catching up to them. It, it, and so we're talking about shows, and I'm not done with this particular show yet. Um, and so I might, you know, I know, Will, you finished Titans, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What I find interesting about that series, and, and I don't know if this really falls into, I mean, it's definitely an unreliable narrator because there are things that are being told in a way that kind of sends you in different directions. Doom Patrol does this as well, um, which I'm really into right now. But I think of the Robin character in Titans and the guilt that he feels um, throughout that series Um, and like what he's dealing with, like the pressure and guilt and like whether he, you know, is just putting more on himself or if he's actually guilty of things. Again, I haven't finished it, Um, but I just I I keep thinking of uh, comic book characters, especially in D.C., where they're carrying something like, you know, the Punisher and stuff like that, where like, you know, there's stuff that's. Sorry, oh, did I say shit? Not the Punisher. Um, but anyway, uh, but comic book characters where they're carrying something with them, right? And and it's like there's a guilt there, and they probably did something really shitty, but at the same time, like um, they're trying to figure out how to navigate through that. And as the spectator in that, we're getting a skewed version of the events. I don't know if that's making any sense, but. Um, it's something really enjoyable to watch. And when the ending comes, it's like, oh, that makes a whole lot of sense now. And it works, you know? Yeah, for sure. I think um, one book, which was then turned into a mini series, is um, Big Little Lies. Mm. I think that book uh, is amazing. And the series is also amazing. Little Fires Everywhere. I think they're both unreliable the two narrators of little files uh, fires everywhere. And what's interesting is as a craft perspective, when you read those books, now all of us love science fiction and fantasy, but this is where I think it's important to read something outside of your genre because those books get a psychologicalness that if you can mimic in fantasy and science fiction, adds even more depth. And I believe you can push more boundaries within our genre that we write with when you can get those fundamental humanity at play. And I think that I think also just for anyone who wants to be entertained, both those books and series are amazingly done well. All right. Next one. You ready? So the emotionally taxed or mentally ill is the next one. Not all mental illness is equal. Some people suffer mild symptoms. Others exist in an alternate universe. Your narrator might be a schizophrenic who believes his hallucinations are real, a new mother suffering from postpartum depression, a veteran diagnosed with post-traumatic stress disorder, or a teen going through a hormone-fueled meltdown. Okay. So the example they give on this one is uh, Dennis Lian. Lian? I don't know. Shutter uh-huh. Island 2003. Lahan? Okay, thank you. Psychological suspense, okay? The narrator, U.S. Marshal Teddy Dan Daniels, visited the hospital for the criminally insane located on Shutter Island to find an escaped prisoner. By the end of the novel, we discover that Teddy's reporting, inac- Teddy's reporting is inaccurate. What he presents as current activities is actually a confused combination of past events and hallucinations. Teddy is himself a patient at the hospital. So we're talking about 
emotionally taxed or, or mentally ill. Any examples jump to mind? There's a lot of this out in, I know in, in movies, but. Um, I have examples of books. If someone else wants to go first. Uh, if you don't mind, well, I mean, I got one. Uh, do you want to go or do you want me to go? I'm going to let you go. Great. It's your turn. It's your, your spotlight, sir. Oh, thank you so much, sir. Um, oh We're getting very formal here tonight, boys. <laughs> we are. I would say uh, Adam Silvera's history is all you left me. We meet Griffin, whose first love and ex-boyfriend, Theo, dies in a drowning accident. I That was the first book I ever read by him, and it really hits close to home for me. So I didn't think I was going to finish it. But what was the reason I say he's um, unreliable is because throughout the narration of the book, Griffin is talking to Theo like he is alive, even though he knows he's dead and we know Theo is dead. I don't want to give away the ending because I think it was so good, but there is a flip on what Griffin isn't also telling us. And it's not, I, I want to also say it's not like a murderous scandal. I thought it was a great meditation on grief and it was done really heartfelt and really well because Griffin also suffers from like obsessive compulsive disorder. And it was probably one of the most accurate depictions of someone grieving who also has OCD and is suffering depression through a great loss. Nick? Yeah. So for mine, um, it's a middle grade book. It's called Freak the Mighty um, by Rodman Philbrick. <gasps> I fucking <gasps> love that book. <laughs> Jeez. You scared the crap out I'm of sorry. me. sorry. I Those love of you that not you mentioned- from the video feed, his <laughs> eyes just went as big as my screen just right now. <laughs> Nick, I read that book to my nephew when he was a sophomore in high school because Joey couldn't really sit and read. And I think that book is beautiful. So go ahead. It, 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 there's a sequel to it as well. Um, the, I can't tell you how much this book impacted me uh, growing up, but kind of the premise, right? You have one character who basically is exceedingly large in stature. Uh, but he has some, some, uh, I, I, how do I phrase this correctly? Some mental health setbacks. He's not. That's uh, well, wow. like, well done, Nick. Like, I, I don't know how else to say it without like going oh. back to the 1990s and how we used to talk. Yeah, um, I think that's fine. You did well. That's but then there's another good. character who's physically disabled, but exceedingly a genius at their age. And they pair up. And so you get this dual narrative of that. Um, it's a beautiful book. Uh, I It's emotionally taxing to me. I can say <laughs> that. Uh, but there is, there is a portion of the narration that is coming from a, a mental illness side of things. Um, it, it's, Beautiful. I really want to read that now. Um, I'm going to throw out, do I want to throw out, I don't really have a specific book in mind. I have a couple in mind, um, but I'm going to throw out an, an author that does this pretty well. 
Um, I'm he's not the I'm not the biggest fan of him anymore, but he does this well, and it's Chuck Palahniuk. Um, and putting putting Fight Club aside, his characters do a, do a really. I mean, he focuses on the mentally taxed, really emotionally taxed, really well, and and the mentally ill pretty well. But what happens is is that unreliable narrator is a constant throughout his his work, especially like Choke, um, Monster, some of the ones I'm thinking of right now. And I think, you know, if if you want a good example of how to tie up endings with an unreliable narrator and pull it off. He, he does a really, really good job with his earlier stuff. I haven't read his recent stuff, but, um, but his earlier stuff, even like I said, fight club aside chokes. One of my favorite monster is, is amazing. Or is it, it's not called monster. It's called, um, is it monster? Beautiful oh, monster. Um, something like that. It's like, um, yeah, I don't, I don't have it on my shelf, but anyway, uh, it, that aside and his short fiction does a good job with it too. I just, I think that's a good author if you want to see how to pull this off, especially on the endings with this type of narrator, with this type of unreliable narrator. I think that's a good place to go for sure. It's invisible monsters. Invisible monsters. I knew there was another word there. Okay. Thank you very much. Should we move on to incapacitated? We have two more in this category. All right. So incapacitated. Um, I'm not going to read this entire thing, but I'm going to read just part of it. So a narrator who is an alcoholic or a bender um, or a drug addict who drifts in and out of lucidity is going to give a skewed account of what he sees and does. Um, according, a, a, according to Narconon, Arrowhead in Oklahoma, an accredited drug rehabilitation service, alcoholics and drug addicts most commonly present the following five behaviors. They lie, manipulate, are likely to be involved in criminal activities, blame others for their failings and are likely to become abusive. Okay. So it talks about the rest of that paragraph talks about combining those and that kind of thing, but so incapacitated. So just to keep my consistency going, the example for this is Paula Hawkins, the girl on the train, 2015. It's a woman's suspense told from the three points of three points of view, Rachel, Anna, and Megan. The story revolves around their experiences with one man, Tom, since Rachel is an alcoholic who has frequent blackouts and the other women have rec- reasons to delude themselves or openly lie, all three narrators are suspect. The ending reveals that the narrator who seemed most re- unreliable was, in fact, the most accurate. Anything jump to mind with talking about the incapacitated? We can come back to that one too later if you want. I, I got one that's teetering on the edge of my mind that I, I, I need some help on a decision. Okay. This this kind of reminds me a bit of Dumbledore. Now, I'm probably crazy, but that's the first character that jumped to my mind. And I'm going to throw it out to you guys. Am I being crazy and looking too far into this? Will? Brent? Uh, okay, so the only, the only way I think he doesn't quite fit this is the fact that he's not addicted or like doing anything like substance abuse wise but in terms of being manipulative in terms of being abusive in terms of like giving skewed accounts of stuff yeah absolutely yeah see and that's kind of what flagged me i don't know him doing drugs but he totally is manipulative he's not obeying the law 90 percent of the time like you know Mm. there that's mine i guess but loosely I, I want to. I, I would like more discussion around that one later time. 
Yeah, we can do it. I'll take it. Will, you got some? I don't even want to discuss Harry Potter. I have no... um, I love those books. Like, loves them. However, I think she um, has turned into someone who is privileged, horrible, and Um, I won't even waste my energy on um, her books anymore. She became an umbrage. Became or always was. That's a question I would actually like to be discussed maybe, but you know what? I I love those books. I think those books are so well-written, but uh, well, not so well-written, but I love them. But I can't even discuss it right now because I'm angry about it. Maybe if she changes her um, soul. <laughs> I love it. You got an example or should I move on? We're good? I, I think I do. I think uh, A Million Little Pieces by James Frey, mm. um, which was marketed as a um, biography, a memoir. And it turns out he's just a liar. And he made it up. Oh, so he was the ultimate... Um, uh, <laughs> Unreliable narrator? Yes. And he (laughs) swears even to this day, like some of the stuff he wrote was true. So why didn't you just make it fiction, bitch? Okay. Like stop calling it. Like you just were on Oprah. Motherfucker. You can say whatever you want. (laughs) Yeah. Peace. Peace. Okay. That's all I got for you. Brent, you good on this one? Um, I'm trying to think of one. Uh, Cause yeah, like it's hard. I feel like it's hard with this one too, because. Mm -hmm. Just, I don't know, like the, the, the mostly tax one and this one I kind of struggle with because I feel like you kind of get into some ableism in terms of like the judgment calls on these kind of narrators. So mm-hmm. it's hard for me mm-hmm. to like, I don't know, pick an example. Um, I guess The Art of Starving, if I had to think of one, The Art of Starving by Sam Miller. And the reason I choose that one is because it deals with an eating disorder and Sam... Um, for uh, I, well, that that's another discussion. But Sam in the book coming out kind of had to disclose that he formerly had an eating disorder. So I think he brings a unique perspective to this topic. So I feel a little more comfortable discussing it. But um, in that book, the main character believes that if he doesn't eat, he gets superpowers, and so he kind of justifies mm. his eating disorder. And so there's these things that happen throughout the book where you're almost wondering, like, well, well, shit, does he have superpowers? Or, like, is he actually doing the things he's doing? And um, it's just a very interesting book about, like, being a teenager, having this eating disorder, being gay, and, like, trying to navigate all of those things. And, um, yeah, he's definitely, it's definitely an incapacitated narrator. So that, I, that, that would be my selection, I guess, for that one. Yeah, and I'm, I'm going to throw one out there too. Uh, there's a Scalzi novel, a uh, duology uh, with the Lock In series. Is Lock In oh, and, and Head On? Oh God, it's so freaking good. Um, I think it fits this pretty well. I don't think it fits 100, percent but the fact that you have a science fiction world where uh, folks with disabilities that have this condition are able to move and live in the world um and then there's it's a thriller on top of it um he does a really good job of ending especially that first book satisfying ending unreliable narrator to a point because it is a thriller um and i think it fits most of these things but it's just something that keeps popping in my head when i think about the incapacitated um in this in this uh 
in this example for sure. Um, if you guys haven't read those two books, they're phenomenal. Really well done. I also, I don't know if this is an unreliable narrator, but have you guys ever read Flowers for Allard? Algernon? Yeah. I've, I've seen the film. Oh, I read, yeah. I read the story. Read the I think that is a fascinating book about you're seeing the growth of intelligence, right? Or how we perceive intelligence and what is reliable, what is unreliable, because it also, I think, intertwines ethics. I don't know. I just, mm-hmm. sometimes I think of that book because I think it's just so multi-layered. No, for sure. All right, guys, you guys are killing this, by the way. Um, paranormal. Let's wrap this up. Uh, we have this one and then the last one, and then we'll, we'll wrap up here. We're, on, we're running a little long, but I'm not trying to be the time guy. Um, all right. So the paranormal. Okay. Uh, oh, shoot. Uh, first paragraph. Okay. So uh, your narrator can appear to be human, but isn't. He could be a ghost, the devil, or an extraterrestrial being, for, ex- for instance, simply appearing in human form. He could also be openly non-human, like the fairies in case state number two, which uh, is a reference to something else she talked about before. So the example she puts in here for the uh, for the paranormal is Clive Barker, um, Mr. Begone from 2007 Literary Fiction, uh, Jacobock, I'm just going to say Jacobock Botch, what a name. The narrator is a lesser, is a lesser demon trying to exercise his hate for his abusive father by writing horrific, sadistic episodes. He repeatedly tries to get the reader to burn the book, finally revealing that if the reader had done so, Botch would have been freed to kill the reader. The novella ends with Botch recommending that the reader give the book to someone they despise. Holy crap. Um, I, has anybody read that? Madness? No. <laughs> yes. <laughs> that sounds insane. Of course Will has. <laughs> of course you have. Um, that sounds insane. Um, and it sounds like a really good example of the paranormal, but what do you guys got? <laughs> Man, when it comes to something like that, where your, your narrator's not human, immediately when he, when reading paranormal, I was like, Dan Wells, like that's the biggest paranormal thing I've ever read, um, which isn't saying much, I guess, <laughs> but, but his, his main character, it's a good example. but he's still a human, right? Right. One one that I recently read, and now that my phone just turned off on me, let me pull it up again. Um, it's another middle grade one. Um, if you guys haven't noticed my theme for the night, The Iron Trial by Holly Black and Cassandra Clare. That narrator is the main character, um, which it follows and narrates against. Spoil, spoiler alert. Turns out not to be completely human at the end. Um, yeah, it's a great twist and things like that. Uh, but things come up throughout it that affect the storyline that gets you thinking along those, uh, along those stuff. Um, so I'm excited to continue down that one, but that's the one I, that's coming to my mind right now. Will you look like you have something to say or do I have something to say? Yeah. You just had this look on your face. I always have that look on my face. Yeah. Um, inquisitive will look. That's what I call yeah. it. Well, I am I'm fascinated with life and people, everyone. Okay. okay? All right, um, all Brent, right. what do you have? <laughs> um, for a paranormal narrator. Um, 
There's a short story I read recently, and I'm trying to remember it, but it was told from the perspective of. So they weren't human. They were they. They were basically representations of different. Um, ah, that's what it was. Okay, so yes, it was a short story by Charles Pacer, and the narrators were actually the living spirits of rivers, and. They were Whoa. dealing with um, they were dealing with water issues, uh, or um, irrigation, overuse of their land, like water systems and whatnot. And you got to see from their perspective, um, it wasn't that they 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 weren't unreliable in terms of um, what they were going through. It was just interesting i guess to see from their perspective how they view human um human use of water sources and how like they view you know irrigation and building dams and whatnot as like actual attacks on their physical being and um yeah i just thought that was an interesting way of like it 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 was unreliable in that it didn't really I guess show like the other side of it. Like why were these humans using irrigation? Were they trying to feed people? Were they building dams to like, you know, help their society or whatever? But it was just strictly, it, it was strictly from the point of view of these rivers, like these living embodiments of the rivers and what, how they were trying to deal with the, um, it. And I found it, I found it really fascinating. And there was another short story I read too. Um, that was, I think horror does this very well when using like supernatural narrators. So um, there was this one story I read and I'm struggling to remember the author's name, but basically it was from the point of view of this demonic goat and how it was trying to, <laughs> yeah, it was trying to, um, it was trying to get into this house and take possession of this family that wronged it. And I just, I found this super fascinating because obviously this thing is evil, like, but you kind of like you're sympathetic to its cause because in the way it describes itself. So I wish I could remember the author's name, but it was a very fascinating short story. And I think horror is a great place for this kind of narrator. Oh, for sure. Um, I have an example, but it is TV, very recent TV. And if you guys haven't watched this series, um, uh, have you guys watched Resident Alien? I've heard of it. Alan Tudyk um, is the main character. He's an alien. He's also the narrator. Um, and so it really gets really interesting to see how it all ties together at the end with him telling the story and him literally telling you most of the time that he is trying to destroy humanity. Yet throughout the throughout every episode, there are moments of humanity that show up within him. It's really, in my opinion, really well done. It's, it's, it's a brilliant series, I think. Um, but I think this fits that paranormal pretty well because you have that narrator and he's, he's telling you a story, but at the same time, it's like, well, you're, you're, you're saying how you want to destroy the human race. Yet I'm seeing the fact that I'm seeing moments of hesitation. You're, you're seeing connections with people and and that kind of thing. And then there's a whole nother thing going on as well. It's really, really cool. Really, really good. So that's my example for that. Uh, my example is two books that intertwine. It's Interview with the Vampire and then the Vampire Lestat. We're, we're seeing 
who Lestat is through the eyes of one character. And then we actually later find out who Lestat is in his eyes and then through the eyes of history. So I think they're both unreliable in a way that it's perspective. You know, um, Louis constantly sees Lestat as this villainous creature who turned him. And Lestat is actually, I think, more tenderhearted and an anti-hero that he allows people to see. Nice. Um, I got to say, I think we're killing it with the examples. And if people are still tuned in right now, they're writing down lists of all this stuff, I hope. So, um, all right, guys, let's get to the last one, wider lens, and then we'll kind of wrap up the book, right? Um, so the we we went through the five parts of the unreliable narrator. Um, let's talk about the wider lens, which is the other way to end up story. Okay, so uh, the way she listed it is a, a wider lens refers to an unexpected but logical alternate alternate view of your story, the kind of dramatic change in perception that occurs when you leave a tunnel and look back. While you're in the tunnel. All you can see is what's directly around you, a narrator, a narrow tube leading to a pinprick of light far ahead. Once you're out of the tunnel, however, if you turn around to view where you've come from, you can see the tunnel was only a narrow tube in a wider landscape. So I'm going to skip down a little bit. The primary issue is that the view in the tunnel is limited. This final shift in perception can be breathtaking. Okay. So the example she gives, and it's a very short one is from William Dahl, Dell, Dahl, uh, Primal Fear, uh, 1993. It's a thriller. At the very end of the book, readers learn that Aaron, on, tri- on trial for murder, lied about his memory, his beliefs, his psychological condition, and his actions. So Wider Lens is the last one uh, that we need to tackle. Any examples jump to mind on, on this ending? So I think actually this one is the one that's most applicable to like science fiction and fantasy, um, what you typically see in um, science fiction and fantasy, because this is the kind of ending that works perfectly for like trilogies or series, I think, because you constantly are having to expand the world, change the perception to keep those long form stories going. So right now I'm rereading the first book in my like favorite uh, fantasy trilogy ever. Um, uh, it's Acacia by David Anthony Durham. And it is, it's a massive book. It's like 800 pages. But so what, how it changes the perception is that um, by the end of the book, you, you've, we, we've been in one continent this whole time. And we hear hints of like this other continent and little little tidbits about it, and we see. So there's a race. There's there's this like Neanderthal race of invaders. They're called the Numric. They come from this other land, and you think that they are the biggest badasses ever because in Acacia, they're basically damn near unbeatable until almost the end of the se- uh, the end of the book. But then at the end of Acacia, you find out. They weren't invading. They were exiled. So they were the bottom rung of these races in this other land. And so it completely changes your perception because it's like, holy shit, you thought the biggest threat was gone. And no, they were actually the lowest point on the totem pole. And um, 
Yeah. So I think I think fantasy and science fiction is very this is this is where this kind of ending excels because you you change the landscape. You you take something that you thought was understood and flip it on its head. So yeah, that would be my example. I love that book. I could talk about it forever, but the thing that comes to my mind is something that's not published that I read from one of my friends, um, Elena. I'm sure you're listening to this, so here's your shout out. <laughs> She wrote this short story that is called Make the Robots Laugh. And it deals with this comedian who's a generational comedian who was used to telling jokes in front of people, but now he's telling jokes in front of robots. And what you think is happening by the time you get to the store, the end of the story, you're like, oh, wow, this is actually happening. And I don't want to give it away because I hope Elena finds a home for it. It's so good. It's really funny in certain parts. And it's just, it's very thought provoking about the human condition. I wish I could tell you more about it, but <laughs> um, Elena, find a home for it, girl. <laughs> I know she's trying. So the last part of this chapter really kind of focuses on uh and 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 not to you know dismiss what you guys said. I think Brand, I think you brought up something I agree with you 100%. Um honestly, like um I think science fiction and fantasy there's there's examples that come into mind like Battlestar Galactica and stuff like that where it just seems to get like by the end of like a season like you look back and it's like holy crap, this is so much bigger, right? Um and that kind of thing. Um so uh, I think what you said, I think science fiction and fantasy does a really good job of this for sure. Um, uh, the last part of the chapter really focuses on um, foreshadowing and how to use that to get to whatever ending you decide, right? Um, and I think uh, what she kind of challenges the you guys to do is experimenting with final twists, and there's a little exercise at the end. But <clears throat> I think we covered... I, I want to say we covered endings pretty well here, boys. Um, but what I want to do is kind of do a little wrap up for the book. Like uh, I have in here just a couple of things I just want to throw out just to the group, just to kind of wrap up kind of where we're at since we're at endings and we're ending this book. Right. So final takeaways just as a book of a, uh, for the book as a whole. Right. Um, was there something that this is a chapter or something that you found most valuable, something that surprised you a dumb moment, which I had, too many of, I feel like, um, or something you wish you had known sooner, et cetera. So I'm just throwing this out there because this is the last episode we're going to cover this book. Um, so if there's something you want to go back to, anything we talked about tonight or just final takeaways, um, I'll just go around. Who wants to go first? Nick, you're unmuting. Go. Yeah, I was prepared that for this one. Um, I wish I would have read this book two years ago. Um, like my one thing that I love doing this for, right. Is it goes back to the very beginning of the reason why we have a podcast, right? This is stuff that no one tells you about when you're first becoming a writer, you know, um, it's, it's something I wish I would have had in my toolbox a long time ago of good books to help craft and skill and to actually get you thinking, you still got to put words on a page, which that's the ultimate learning point. 
But right now, this is really helping me plot my middle grade novel that I'm uh, writing. Um, it's being me, letting me be more consistent and concise in my thought processes and my world building and things like that. So I love it. Uh, I, again, wish I would have had this two years ago. Um, never too late, though. Will, do you want to go next? I'll go next. Um, for me, it was about the pacing of the subplots. I think this is a great book to kind of read and think about if you're in your work progress, but I also think its greatest strength for me is going to be in revisions. I think the idea of where to put the plate, um, the subplots, how many pages you should see, kind of the TR, the TDRs, um, and where things can kind of go. And the reason I recommended this book was because Cameron Hurley actually read it and she said it was a really great game changer uh, for her, that she struggled with structure. But she also was writing a book that is Killing Eve meets Die Hard that she's currently working on. And she was really trying to like read some books that really give you, like she said, she wants to write things that are really punching you and like are great plot twists. And I felt like, well, this is a book we should read. This sounds really fascinating. And I think I learned the most from the subplot part and how to pace them. Yeah. And and I'm going to just second that. Uh, it, it wasn't even so much the pacing of it. I, I feel like the subplots part was super important, but for me, it was the visual of just literally being able to see like, holy shit, I have a one through line and then I have subplots and like seeing them intersect and just having a, like I made a digital version of it for myself just because it's something I can play with. And it was something that I feel like I needed like a visual of, okay, this is logically where this should happen. But at the same time, like, yeah, I should have this in mind as I'm writing too. Like I definitely have subplots going but the visual of it was, was huge. Um, so I learned something there. Um, and, and, and I'm with you guys as far as, um, just wishing I had known some of this stuff earlier. It's not, I don't think anything in here except for some of the visual stuff was necessarily like new information. It was just, it, it was, it was presented in a way where it was broken down to where it was accessible to where I could pull parts of it and use it if I need to, like Will said with revisions. I think it's super important. This book in revisions alone will, I think, save a lot of us. If, if, if you, if you, uh, I guess, uh, um, use the tools that, that she puts out there. So Brent last thoughts. Yeah. Um, I just like I'm kind of with you, Marshall. I like the visuals. Like all the visuals were really good, and um, like you said, it wasn't stuff that I necessarily didn't know, but um, a lot of it I didn't know the name for it. Like I knew what I was doing, but I just didn't know the name for it. I was right. like, oh, okay, that's what you call that. So um, I think sometimes just in terms of, especially I, I, thinking about it from like an editing perspective too. Like I was like, oh, okay, I can kind of like better articulate criticisms now and you know what what um what's what i'm noticing is missing or needs to be added and whatnot so yeah i just really enjoyed i enjoyed getting a chance to see stuff that i already knew but 
being explained in such a way that it felt very digestible. Yeah, that's the word. Yeah. So, um, yeah, that would, and I think, um, I know we didn't cover it, but the afterword had some really interesting thoughts too that I liked. You want to throw one out there or are you good? <laughs> um, yeah. The one I liked was your, uh, writing is a process. Trust the process. I tell people that all the time. Like, writing is a process. You just got to trust it. Um, you know, and understand the difference between your internal critic. And when you're just being overly hard on yourself, I think that was uh, I think that's really important, too, because like I think especially when you're just starting off writing. And this is something I had to actually learn for myself and um, with this novella, because like I'm just like at, at a point where I'm like, man, this is this sucks. Man. I don't know the <laughs> hell this is going to get out there. And a friend told me was that. No one knows everything it took to get the final product. They just want the final product. So whatever process you got to go through to get to the final product, as long as the final product is good, nobody gives a shit about everything that came before. So just trust your process. If your process is that you got to walk around your room five times drinking a cup of tea, then do it because no one's going to know that you did it to get the final product. So I just like that she kind of, said trust the process yeah i don't i don't know any better way to end this episode without that little nugget so unless you guys have something else i'm i'm gonna let it go there <laughs> i think that was genius brent was just awesome, dropping brent. those dropping those wisdom <laughs> right there you sexy bitch just yeah, dropping that shit right there you know? That's awesome. <laughs> this is why people tune in brent is for you <laughs> Yeah, And this has been Just Keep Writing, a podcast for writers, by writers, to keep you writing. You can find us at justkeepwriting.org. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube. Feel free to reach out to any of us on our social medias, and please jump in our Just Keep Writing Discord channel. Links to all of that is in the show notes. Lastly, please support our show by going to patreon.com slash justkeepwriting. We offer daily writing prompts, early access to podcast episodes, and much more. Thanks for listening, and just keep writing. Thank you.